So now we come to God's Word. This is not the only part of our Christian liturgy, but as we have been doing now for hundreds of years as God's people, it tends to be the central part. Our liturgy revolves around our attention to God's Word. It is our authority, and it is our hope. Today, we continue our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Genesis. We felt like a number of months ago it was important for us to go to the book of beginnings and see what God has done there. As we read in the book of Genesis, as we learn from it, we find our identity. As we find our identity as God's people, we are comforted with security. We understand what it means to belong. I have a brother, three brothers actually, but my oldest brother is really big into family trees and genealogies. And so, um, recently, he's been doing all kinds of work on Ancestry.com. And so now, if you get on this little page that he's put together, you can trace our roots, like, all the way back to the Huguenots, which were Reformed French people back in, like, the 15th century. And it's really cool because you get to go back and learn where you're from and see a bunch of old graveyards with uh, tombstones of people from your past and so forth. And eventually they came to uh, America and went through Virginia and then into Kentucky. So all my roots are on my paternal side are in Kentucky, and I've gotten to visit several generations back <clears throat> into my family there of bootleggers and moonshiners and murderers and all that kind of stuff. So I have kind of a checkered past. But it's really interesting to, to look back and to see where you're from. If you look back about five generations on my paternal grandmother's side, uh, her great-great-great-grandfather or something like that was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher. Uh, his mother built him a church. He would go on a four-week circuit, and once, once a month he would come to their little community, and he would preach the gospel there in this little church that she built for him. Uh, like four generations later, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, and my dad were converted in that church during a little Methodist revival. You know, kind of the cliched thing of the sawdust floor, and they walked down front before the service even began and placed their faith in Jesus. And so it's really fun to go back, not only and learn your past, but to see the roots of faith that go back there. I think Genesis is like that for us, except we're looking back many thousands of years as we see what God has done now for His people. And as we look into Genesis, we're not just amazed with the historical stories. We don't just come away with the notion that we, we shouldn't do the bad things that they did and we should do the good things that they did, that we shouldn't be faithless like they often were, but we should be full of faith as they sometimes were. Genesis is much more than that. It's more than just a book which prescribes to us faithfulness It's a book which primarily puts in front of us the inescapable truth that God is always faithful. As I said to you today at the beginning of our worship gathering, there are two primary things that should happen every time we get together as the assembled people of God. Frankly, it's the same thing that should happen every time you approach God's Word. And those two things, once again, are that our God is constantly faithful. And His faithfulness should so overwhelm us that we sense that we belong, that we are secure in His unbreakable and unstoppable love. And that secondly, we respond to that consistently week after week, though of course imperfectly, to purpose by the grace of the Spirit to reflect that same kind of grace to the world around us, to be renewed week by week into the image of the Creator. And so today, as we look into Genesis chapter 28, which is a familiar story to most of us, we are once again going to see unfolding the unstoppable grace of God. And I encourage you now to be imploring the Spirit to help this not be old hat to you, to not be distracted by the many legitimate cares upon your life but to ask the Spirit to renew within you a sense of God's unstoppable love for you and to ask Him how you should respond. Let's read together God's holy word. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, down through the end of the chapter. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head 
and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in his way, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, and the Lord shall be my God." And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will give a full tenth to you. May God instruct our hearts through the reading of His Word. Let's pray quickly together. Our Father, now we come in faith to Your Word, to this text which has been used for Your people now for thousands of years. And I pray that through its truth, You will instruct our hearts, that You will comfort us, that you will transform us for your glory. We pray these things in confidence in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we will see from this text, I believe, the unstoppable grace of God. That is significant because as we look back into chapter 27, we see Jacob at his lowest point. Jacob has with bold intentions, deceived his father and his brother. He did not do it unknowingly. He did it with full awareness of what he was doing. Frankly, if we have the ability to look past these familiar stories and read them with somewhat fresh eyes, Jacob's actions in Genesis chapter 27 are pretty shocking. Most of us, if we're being honest, are deceitful from time to time. That's just the reality. Now, most of us, if we were to be asked point blank, do you ever lie? Most of us would initially say, no, I never lie. But in one way or another, we tend to be relatively deceitful in one way or another. Shading the truth, putting forward the best version of ourselves, withholding pertinent information and not sharing all that is true of us. But as we look at Jacob in Genesis chapter 27, I mean, he lied with intention. He planned to lie. He planned to deceive. And now he is on this journey, and he's not doing it in a pious way. Jacob is on this journey because his parents have sent him away because he needs to find a wife. But even more so, Jacob is on this journey because if he stays in Beersheba, he is going to die. And he will die at the hands of his brother. So Jacob can't stay home anymore. The mother that had coddled him all of his life, and interestingly and sort of parenthetically, I think whenever you did the crafts for this story, if you grew up in Sunday school, Jacob was always like 16 when he left home. It's really likely that Jacob is nearly 60 in this text. Now, People lived a little bit longer back then, so the old 60 was like our new 28 or whatever. But but Jacob is not a young man in this text. He's at least 40, and probably because of the ensuing years, is probably upper into his upper 50s. And, And Jacob lied with all he had. He put all of his efforts into lying, and now the mother who had coddled him for all these decades, he will never see her again. 
His father, whom he had deceived so intentionally, would be an old man that he would never have a relationship with in any intentional sense again. His one and only brother, he will now leave and fears wants to kill him. He has no place, and so he is leaving. And he comes to a place, a place that he does not intend to camp at. It just happens to be the place that he would go to that evening. It was very common in the ancient Near East that if you didn't have artificial light like fires or some sort of candle back in the day, you'd just go to sleep when it was sundown. So he happened across this place called Luz about sundown, and he decides he's going to go to sleep. But God has intentions for him there. And though this wanderer does not have a home, he comes to a place which will become very significant for him in his life. I think this text has three basic horizons for us, and I will explain that to you in just a moment. The first one, I believe, is the Lord and Jacob, and that's the initial and most primary horizon in front of us. The Bible is like that especially as you read the Old Testament. There's initial fulfillment. There's initial story, what what this text meant to the people who were involved in it. As we will see as we go on, there are two more horizons that I believe that we should see as we walk through this text. Horizons are like that. As you look off into the distance, you can see where sky meets earth. But as you walk toward that horizon and feel like for a moment that's the end of all created things and you're just going to fall off the edge of the earth, a new horizon is in front of you. We will see a couple of those in just a moment. But horizon number one, the the thing that we see on the page in front of us is the story between the Lord and Jacob. As I've already said to you, Jacob is at his lowest point. Even in the coming chapters where Jacob will spend time in Haran and eventually come back to the promised land of Canaan, Jacob was never quite as bad seemingly as he was in chapter 27. And yet God meets with him anyway. And interestingly, as we read about Jacob and the Lord's encounter with him here in chapter 28, the Lord is overwhelmingly full of promises for this guy. You would think that the Lord would come to him and rebuke him, that he would come to him and help him understand the depths of his sin. Now, it's possible that there was more said than that is recorded. But when Moses wrote these things down, these are the things under inspiration of the Spirit he felt like were most important to be said. In fact, it's the overriding purpose of this encounter that the Lord had with Jacob. And that is to reconfirm to this deceiver both in action and in name, that the Lord would keep His promises to Jacob. This probably goes without saying, but the Lord is not like us. The slightest sort of ripple in the continuum of our relationships with one another can cause our relationships to completely disintegrate. It's just reality. Most of us, if we're being honest, can count on more than one hand the relationships in our lives that have gone sour. And people can do things to us, frankly, legitimately bad things, that have lifelong consequences and and rend our relationships. It's impossible for us to do this and, frankly, edges up against the the sort of periphery of being irreverent, to just consider if we were God for a minute. And by that I mean, what if you were the kind of person that had never done anything wrong? What if you were the kind of person that had never wronged anybody, that all you had ever done is bless people around you, and yet those people with whom you purposed to develop relationship did many, many bad things against you? So you're the perfect standard of relational love and yet everyone around you seems to be far less than that. And we know as humans that even when people have done wrong things against us, that we're not the best either. Now, we may not be as bad as some of the people around us, but we know we're not perfect. 
What if you were God and you had never done anything wrong? In fact, all that you had ever done was purpose to bless people around you. How would you have responded to this deceiver coming out of Beersheba from chapter 27? What would you have done to him? God had the right to strike him dead. If nothing else, God had the right to withdraw his presence from him. But God doesn't do that. God comes after Jacob. In Luke's gospel, whenever you hear Jesus giving the story of the prodigal, the primary thrust of that story is the differentiation, the diversity of response between the older brother of the prodigal and the father of the prodigal. The older brother of the prodigal is a retributional man. He does not understand grace And he wants his brother to suffer for his poor choices. The father of the prodigal, on the other hand, pursues the prodigal as soon as he sees him on his property and he lavishes his love upon him. Why could Jesus tell a story like that? Well, the reason is, from all of human history, God had been pursuing prodigals. And Jacob is sort of the ultimate prodigal. He has been driven away from his home. And his brother is the the chief example of retribution. And yet now his father, a much better father than his biological father Isaac, comes after him. Not scolding him, surprisingly, but promising him love and grace. And so, this place gets a new name. It will no longer be called Luz. It will be called Bethel, which means house of God. And this strange imagery is set up. A stairway is extended from heaven to earth, and God is there, and He is talking to Jacob. And upon this ladder or stairway, angels are ascending and descending. And this place, in this house of God, where Jacob the prodigal is resting for the night, God comes to him and heaven meets earth. This text demonstrates to us the sovereign grace of our Lord, that Jacob was not seeking after God. Chapter 27 proved that. Jacob loved his sin. Jacob loved himself. He did not love the Almighty. But the Almighty loved him. And this is in keeping with that the Almighty had promised his father Isaac and his father Abraham that through them, despite their consistent unfaithfulness, he would bless the world. This is in keeping with God's promises to Noah and even further back his promises to Adam and Eve that, that he would not give up on his promises. That despite the sinfulness of mankind, He would send a Redeemer. As human history unfolds, it will come through Abraham's deeply imperfect line. And Jacob is such a clear example of this. So, heaven meets earth. And God is saying to Jacob, despite your sinfulness, I will come to you and I will pour out my grace upon you. Why was this so significant? Well, really, this is about relationship. This is about communion with the Creator. This is about shalom. This is about peace with God. This is about this man, Jacob, the deceiver, the wicked, consistent deceiver, finding that significance, satisfaction, fulfillment, undivided, unmixed worship, and rest can alone exclusively come from God. As we talked about last week in chapter 27, why did Jacob do these things? What was the psychology behind his decisions to legitimize in his own mind such awful decisions? Jacob was a craver. Jacob had passions. 
As I said to you last week, one of the things that we have done now in the evangelical church for, for more than just centuries, as you look back at the history of the Christian church, now millennia, is we have tried to, to squash desires. We've tried to tell people if, if you'll just put away your desires, then you can worship God well. The ascetics, the monks tried this in the first few centuries of the church. They would lock themselves up in monasteries on the sides of a mountain or sit on a wooden pillar that they had built in the middle of the desert, seeking to rid themselves from any earthly pleasure and therefore have undivided hearts and worship God exclusively. The problem is when we do that is we're, we're cutting off an important component of how God made us as image bearers. That is to say, God is a God of affections. God feels. God desires. And He made you like that. The problem is, of course, because of the fall, our heart desires often the wrong kind of things. And Jacob is a chief example of that. He was full of desire, but it was misdirected desire. It was was harmful desire. And as a man who gave his all to see those desires met, he met a horrible roadblock in chapter 27, and now his life is in danger and he's on the run. But now God comes to his prodigal son, and he begins to unfold to him that he alone, that he God alone, could be the one to meet these desires. So heaven meeting earth here is about God showing this wandering image bearer what it looks like to find satisfaction with the Creator once again. This is about making Jacob whole. This is about taking a a broken, desiring kind of person, a person who craves the wrong things, and redirecting those desires and meeting all of them. You see, redemption and God's scheme is more than just about wiping away your sins. Redemption and God's scheme is more than just giving you an eternal mansion somewhere with streets of gold and trees that bear fruit in every season so you're never hungry. Redemption in God's scheme is about restoration. As you look into Genesis chapter 2, what did Adam and Eve have? They had everything, more than they could ever need. It was there for them, and it was there for them in abundance. And those of us who have experienced redemption, we look back at Eden and we say, what must that have been like? To never crave the wrong thing, to, to only exclusively crave the one best thing, and then to fellowship with Him face to face. What must that have been like to have perfect, not only vertical relationships, but horizontal relationships with, with God's people that He made? What would that be like? But ever since Adam and Eve plunged the whole human race into sin, we have been much like Jacob full of craving, full of desire, and full of twisted and harmful ways of meeting those desires. But God in His sovereign grace brings His chosen ones up against a roadblock and helps them to see that 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 path will never satisfy. But He promises them that, that He alone will satisfy them. So to be very clear in this text, we do not find Jacob to be a perfect candidate for this kind of covenantal faithfulness. Jacob was was the least that should have experienced this kind of relationship, but God came to him anyway. Eden was a place where heaven met with earth, quite literally. Because of sin, that portal, if you will, was broken. But God met with Jacob's grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, and both of these men we see lots of flaws. And now he comes to the flawed grandson of Abraham, who perhaps is more flawed than any of them, and promises that the portal will be opened once again, that that God would come to humanity, that He would not abandon them, 
And essentially, he's not only making promises to the earth, which we'll talk about in a few moments, but he's making promises to this very specific man that he can be transformed, that he can be different, that he can be redeemed, that he can be restored. And I say to you today that if you find yourself in that state and you're hiding it, that you are not honest with anyone around you or perhaps even yourself, that you are not beyond redemption, that God will rescue you and restore you, you need only turn to Him in faith. One interesting question is this, was this Jacob's conversion experience? It's interesting as you look at Jacob's vow at the end of the chapter, which interestingly is the longest vow in all the Old Testament, that it seems pretty conditional. He says, if God will be with me, verse 20, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Now, now, all that's asking a lot. Jacob has no resources, and if he comes back to his homeland, he's under threat of death. Then he says at the end of verse 21, then the Lord shall be my God. Is he bargaining with God? Is he bartering with God? Some scholars think that that's exactly what's going on. In fact, if you have an ESV study Bible in front of you, uh, the notes in the text there say that very thing, that, that this is not Jacob as a converted man here at the end of the text. He, he's bargaining with God. He's better than he was, but, but he's not truly a worshiper yet. Other scholars think that, that being charitable, that this is sort of Jacob's turning point. It's interesting that as you read on in Jacob's life, as you come to chapter 32 where he returns on his way to Canaan, that that perhaps seems more like a conversion experience. In Genesis chapter 35, he comes back here to Bethel and, and provides sacrifices and, and commits himself to God. It's not clear, frankly, at the end of the day, when Jacob was converted. And frankly, Moses, when he wrote these things down, didn't clarify it perhaps on purpose. New birth is an instantaneous thing. When the Holy Spirit regenerates you and gives you new birth, you are converted immediately. But many of those things are, are in the secret counsels of God, and it's hard for us to discern them. Conversion to us sometimes feels like a process. We have seen that here with a number of you, especially who were converted as adults. It's hard for you sometimes to, to pinpoint the date where you were born again and you came to a settled faith in God. It felt like conversion. It felt like process to you when you initially encountered the truths of God and considered them and considered the way that you were living and the way that you should change and the promises that God held out to you. And though today you perhaps cannot pin down the exact time when you came to faith, you know today that you are resting in Jesus. So once again, even though we believe theologically that new birth is an instantaneous transformation, conversion can feel like a process. Was Jacob born again here? We cannot say. But his conversion process begins. At least we can say that. And ultimately, the focus, therefore, is not on Jacob. It's not on Jacob making a decision. It's not on Jacob praying a prayer. The focus in this text is on God. Spurgeon said a long time ago, We are chosen of God according to the good pleasure of His will, and this alone is blessedness. Then, since we cannot and will not come to God of ourselves, he works graciously in us and attracts us powerfully. He subdues our unwillingness and removes our inability by the almighty workings of His transforming grace. Jacob's story proves that to us. So this text, primarily, horizon one, is about the Lord and Jacob. But there's another horizon, the Lord and Israel. So as you come up to the horizon the place that you saw as the end thing in your vision, you find that the horizon is new. There's a new horizon for you. 
Historically, as we understand this text, Moses wrote it down for the people of Israel. If you know Jacob's story, as he comes back to the promised land, he gets a new name. His new name would be Israel. When Moses is sent with his brother Aaron to redeem the people of Israel from Egypt, Moses begins to write down the story of Israel, their national story, but also their personal story, because they all came from Jacob, who later would take on the personal name of Israel. The name Israel means he strives with God. Israel would be like that, much like their forefather, Jacob. They would be ones who would, at times, follow after God and worship Him, but at other times not. As Moses recorded these things that we find here in front of us in Genesis chapter 28, he wrote them down on purpose. Why? Because national Israel was much like individual Israel. They were wanderers, not just literally with their feet in the desert, but their hearts were prone to wander. What did Moses want his people to understand? He wanted his people to understand that their chief and only treasure was the Lord, that their only hope for forgiveness and renewal was the Lord, that when they sinned and turned away from God, that He would still meet with them, that He would not abandon them. Israel, the nation, would be the conduit through which the Messiah would come to bless the world, which we'll talk about in a few moments in our last horizon for today. But as we read this text, we not only see the Lord meeting with Jacob and transforming him, or at least beginning to do so, but we have to put ourselves back in Moses' shoes and Israel's shoes and think about why Moses wanted them to understand these texts. And we find ourselves like Israel. We find ourselves as the covenant people of God who are promised great and precious things Yet often we turn from these things, and yet God is always faithful. Moses recorded the story of Jacob in great detail so that he could look his people in the eye and say to them, the Lord, He is your only hope. The Lord, He is faithful to keep covenant. The Lord, He will never abandon us. The Lord, He will fight for us. The Lord will take us to the promised land. What, what if you were part of that first generation of Israel that came out of Egypt, that fell into disobedience, and were told as a punishment that you would not enter into the promised land? As a good and loving parent or grandparent, you would hope that God would forgive. And even though you were going to suffer the consequences, you would hope that your children and your grandchildren would get to go in, that that which you messed up that they would get to experience. And so you would talk to the covenant Lord a lot, and you would say, Lord, we are sorry. We were unfaithful. And though we do not like the circumstances in which we find ourselves, we deserve this. But please show faithfulness to our children and to their children. And yet, as you wandered around in the wilderness, you would know the propensity of your own heart to turn away from God. And you would see it in your kids, and you would see it in their kids. And you would have to wonder, because we all are legalists, you would have to wonder, God, have I done enough things so that you will forget the failures of my past and bless my posterity? Why did Moses write these things down? To say to a sinful nation that despite your sinfulness, God is faithful. God will keep His promises. And this is so important for us because the reality is, even on our best days, we are unworthy servants who do not deserve grace. Grace cannot be earned. 
And I say to you, brothers and sisters, it will take a lifetime to get the notion out of your head that if you just do enough, God will bless you. It will take a lifetime to get the notion out of your head that when you do poorly, God will abandon you. Many of your human relationships have preconditioned you to think that way, but that's not what your God is like. Now, certainly in Jacob's life and in Israel, the nation's life, there were consequences for sin, but God keeps covenant with His people. So I say to you, brothers and sisters, when you sin, God will not abandon you, for He keeps covenant faithfully. This does not excuse your sin. In fact, it should lead you to grateful, purposing by the power of the Spirit to not sin. But inevitably, we will. But even then, God does not abandon us. God keeps covenant The promise is that God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that eventually a Redeemer would come and crush the head of the evil one and bring redemption to God's people and restore that relationship where heaven would meet earth. As you read the characters in the story, you could quickly fall into despair because they're all a mess. And if we're being honest about ourselves, we often are as well. But God has not made contingent promises to these people. He has promised redemption, and despite their sinfulness, He will bring it to pass, and that should blow your minds. Horizon number one is God's meeting here with Jacob, bringing heaven to earth, showing him that He will keep covenant. The second horizon is is when Moses wrote these things down. What was he trying to say to his people? We find ourselves very much like them. Look with me, if you don't mind, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is Moses' last chance to speak to his people before he himself will die. He himself will suffer the consequences of faithlessness, and he will not be allowed to enter into Canaan, the land that God had promised his people. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 16, and elsewhere in Deuteronomy, God reconfirms through Moses' voice and his pen that he will keep covenant with Israel. Beginning in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, God says through Moses to the people of Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord. I mean, set apart. Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And the ensuing verses go on and on about these promises. We find in this text, as Moses recorded it, that God had something to say to Israel, that God had set them apart as His own people for their joy and for His glory because His love is unbreakable and it's their only hope. But the third horizon is a bit of a surprising one. And frankly, this is about the Lord and all peoples. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, John records the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He clarifies the beginning of the text that Jesus is very God of God, that He was in the beginning with God, that He came to reveal God to His people. By the end of chapter 1, Jesus begins choosing those who will follow Him as early disciples. We find that beginning in verse 43. 
The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, to the north of Israel. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus alluding to here in John chapter 1 as he begins his public ministry? The one of whom Moses wrote. What's he talking about? He is now saying that that he himself has become the portal between heaven and earth. He is the one that is now bringing God to the people. In fact, one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, God with us. In verse 17 of John's Gospel, chapter 1, he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jacob had a dream, and he saw a ladder or a stairway set up between heaven and earth. It was as though God was saying to the prodigal Jacob, I am bringing Eden once again to this place. And Jacob calls it Bethel. Moses told his people that God would not abandon them, but would come to them and meet with them. A tent was set up, and later a temple where God would meet in the center of Israel, geographically and metaphorically. But this will not be a garden. It will not be a town that gets a new name. It will not be a temporary tent or a temple that could be destroyed It would be a person. It would be the Son of God who has taken on human flesh who comes and brings God back to His people. What is Jesus saying to these early disciples? I have come to you to bring you back to God, to bring you meaning, to bring you shalom, to bring you peace, to bring you rest. It will not be a stairway. It will not be a ladder. It will not be done through dreams. It will be done quite literally. I will be the one who brings you back to God through this body which will be broken and raised in newness and victory. I will reconcile you to God. What did Jacob need? Jacob needed restoration. What did God offer him? Restoration. Horizon number one of our text. What did Israel need? Broken, sinful, rebellious, faithless Israel. Horizon number two, they needed promises of restoration. What did Philip and Nathaniel, what did they need? Restoration. What do we need? Restoration. That is horizon three. Frankly, the greatest purpose of Genesis chapter 28 that one day God would come to earth literally and bring his people back to God. In John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. What was Eden? 
Eden was where God met with humanity. But paradise was lost. What was Bethel? It was a place of promise where God would meet with His people, both for Jacob and later for Israel, the nation. But Bethel and Jerusalem and the tabernacle and the temple, they all, they all proved inadequate. So God didn't just give a city or a tent or a structure. God sent His own Son. And through Jesus, He is bringing those alienated back to Himself. So we see ourselves in God's encounter with Jacob. It's prodigals rescued and redeemed by the one who pursues. We see ourselves in Israel, a wandering people fearful that perhaps eventually we will do enough bad that God will not keep His promises. We find here in this third horizon the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis chapter 28, that God will keep His promises despite the sinfulness of humanity, and this promise of faithfulness is blessedness to us, that God will never leave us or forsake us, and Jesus is God's true hope for humanity. How do we respond to this? Here's a couple suggestions. We must remember that our sins, even the big ones, do not make us or others irredeemable. You've done a lot of bad things. I have done a lot of bad things. Some of them big. But Adam and Eve's sins did not break God's purpose to rescue for Himself a people. Neither did Jacob's or Israel's or the people of the first century to whom Jesus came or ours. To be sure, sin is awful. Sin must be paid for, but that's why Jesus came. God takes sin seriously, serious enough that He was willing to sacrifice His own Son upon whom God would place the sins of His people. And if we will turn to Him, we will be granted His righteousness and the penalty of our sin will be removed. But even after we have been born again, converted, we know that our sins still are many. But Jacob's story reminds us that God will not forsake His own and that He keeps His promises. This also means that those in our lives that we see consumed by sin... Maybe some who claim to be followers of Christ and many who are not, that they are not beyond the reach of God's grace. If it's true that Jacob was in his late 50s here in Genesis chapter 28, and by the time he gets back to Canaan, it's at least 20 years, some scholars think more like 40 before he maybe is fully converted and brought to God, nobody in your life is beyond the reach of God's grace. So pray in confidence. Reach out to them with the good news and confidence. The same good news which gives you confidence that God will not forsake you, God will not forsake your dad that hasn't believed yet. God will not forsake your mom who has not believed yet. You can trust Him and pray to Him. You do not know how God will respond to that ultimately. But until they take their last breath, pray and share and hope. Secondly, and lastly for today, we must never cease growing in our knowledge of and appreciation for the Lord's redemptive providence. He always keeps His promises, and Jesus is the very best promise. What I'm saying to you is as you read the Bible, as you hear it taught, as you study it, don't just do this mechanically. Allow these truths to get down into your heart and marinate there. It should be that we walk away from this text, frankly, overwhelmed that there is a God like this, and He has chosen to set His affections on people like you and me. Brothers and sisters, as we look here into these texts, it's important for us to know them, to have them planted deeply within us. And not only the texts that we find here, but our own stories as we look at God's providence in our life, to see that He has never abandoned us, but He always loves us. As we opened up our time today somewhat lightly, 
ourancestry.com, as we look back at our family tree, is a checkered past. A lot of bad, not just from our forefathers, but, but our own decisions. And yet God is always faithful. And I'm telling you that unless you understand the story of the Bible, which frankly is about redemption, the story of the Bible is the promise of the gospel from beginning to end. If you don't understand that, if you don't embrace that, if you don't drink that in and let that marinate in your heart, when you sin, you will come undone. If you're not drinking deeply from the well of the gospel, when you do well, when you perform well, when you, when you cross all the T's and dot all the I's, you will be overcome with pride. If you are not consistently growing in your knowledge of God's redemptive providence, despite the sinfulness of humanity, including you, when trouble comes, you will be full of anxiety. Brothers and sisters, the only way to deal with sin the only way to deal with prevailing pride, the only way to deal with the anxiety that inevitably comes in this world is to know that there is a God and He has for you and He has made promises to you and He has fulfilled them especially in His Son. So I say to you, do not tire of growing in your awareness how every text in the Bible points to Jesus and He is your only hope. So as we respond to this text today, seeing ourselves in Jacob, seeing ourselves like Israel, and seeing Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of this text, we should respond in faith and gratitude. And then we go reflect that kind of same loyal love to the world around us who desperately needs it because they don't know it. People around you don't know what this is like because they've never seen it. So as you rest in this kind of love, you get a chance like a mirror to go reflect it to the world all around you. That kind of love is shocking. That kind of love is different. That kind of love will sustain you. And that kind of love, by the grace of the Lord Jesus, will draw others to Him. So let's learn from this text. May the Spirit grant us grace. Let's pray.